0: Welcome to the podcast of Grace Covenant Church, where we are transformed by God's grace, connected through relationships, and committed to service. Wow, those were some that, was like that last those last three songs that worship set was amazing. No, wow. Um, let, let me read that quote from uh, that's in your bulletin. There, I, I came across the earth is crammed with heaven, every common bush afire with God. But only he, he who sees takes off his shoes. The rest sit around it and pluck blackberries. The earth is crammed with heaven. We're in a series on being near to God. God is near. But what we're finding out is God is always near. We need to move nearer God. We need to do things that can bring our souls into sync with his presence in our life. Uh, one writer put it this way, it's a tectonic shift in the way we see the world. We're, we're looking at with eyes that see the flashes of heaven flickering on earth's shadows, ears that hear angel songs counterpointed by the barking of dogs. The earth is crammed with the presence of God. So we looked in our series together, this is the last week together in this, in this um, five weeks together, and, and we looked at learning how to have conversational prayer with God. He's our friend, he's our father, and we converse with him all throughout the day. Then we looked at a structured prayer so that we can make sure that we can, you know, have a legitimate and balanced prayer life together. Then we looked not at um, speaking to God, but hearing from God. We, in our Bible reading, if we read our Bible relationally, then we can, we can speak with God and hear God's voice in the Word of God. And then when we talked about meditating on the Word of God... It's in the meditations of God that we can begin to think his thoughts and we can hear his voice in our everyday living. And now uh, we're going to look at some more things. But these these, pra- these things that we're doing, they're called disciplines, right? And they need to be practiced. And if you're rusty or, or, or don't, haven't ever done this before, then it would be normal for you not to be very good at it. And it's worth a diligent persistence and, and commitment to these these desperately way, desperate ways of seeking the presence of God, right? I would say one of the major issues that I come across when I'm talking to people in a congregation, it's that um, that there's something broken here, right? And intimacy is somehow eluded. There is a, a gap uh, that seems to be it can't be forged or a wall that can't be broken through, and, and right, and and so this this. This intimacy eludes us. And what, I'm, what I want you to hear today is don't quit, right? Keep, keep trying, keep working. It's worth the work. And sometimes it's, sometimes it's life that is bigger than just Bible study and prayer, right? Sometimes there's an intoxicating effect of grief that has on your life, and you, um, you lose your ability to stay stable, right? Sometimes an omnipresence of worry is it has a voice that's louder than the voice of God. Some, sometimes it's, uh, it's, it's the idea of um, the, the fingers of resentment. They grab your soul and choke the life out of it. And so sometimes there are things around you, circumstances in life, the voices in your head that keep you from hearing the voice of God in prayer and in Bible study. So today, what I wanted to do is look at three more disciplines of you know, bringing the nearness of God into our lives that are used to kind of unstuck, unstick us when we're having experiences like that, when we don't feel like God is near, and we're trying our best in these other disciplines. But these are some things that we can find in the Bible that are used to help us move past these mountains in life. The first one is fasting. Fasting. And generally speaking in the Bible, when it talks about fasting, it, it means ref- you know, abstaining from food for an extended period of time, and it's used in many different contexts in the Bible. Uh, one is repentance. Sometimes the people of God in, in the Old Testament in Israel and individuals in the Newer Testament that they, they have wandered from God, they have rejected His holiness, and they have lived. They're starting to now to live with the consequences of those decisions and those values, and and they want to get back. They want they want to make things right, and so it's not unusual for a leader at the time, somebody like a Moses or a Nehemiah calls the nation to repentance that begins in fasting. Let's stop eating for a while. Let's commit ourselves to repentance. Sometimes it's an appeal to God for life and death. David doesn't eat his, his um, young son. He's a newborn son, and he, and he is in terminal condition, and David says, I won't eat. I will, I will cry out to the to God, and just stay right here. I won't leave from this place until we find out the fate of this child doesn't eat. The child dies, and then David cleans himself up and moves on because that was his time of fasting. Other times it's uh, having to do with sorrow, and this is um, completely consistent with somebody that's in grief, but sometimes the whole nation is in grief. A great godly king dies, and, and they're instructed to tear their clothes and to cover themselves with mourning And refrain from eating, fasting. Oftentimes when you're in grief, you don't want to eat anyway. And sometimes it's just blanket fear. Uh, You may know the story of Esther. Uh, She has to go and interrupt a meeting that her husband's having, and he is a, a megalomaniac, you know, bipolar narcissist who likes to kill for killing's sake. And she's She's been instructed to go and interrupt him, and it could cost her her life. But she says, for, "For my life and for the life of Israel, we should all fast for three days and pray to God, because this this is kind of a different this is a different level of need in our lives. So fasting was required to get past this this um, this wall, this barrier, to bridge this gulf gulf. How does fasting work? Who knows? I mean, honestly, who knows? Um, in, in many people's lives, it just, every time their stomach growls, it reminds them to pray. Sometimes it means, you know, my, my stomach is growling for food like my soul growls for you. But I think today, honestly, if Jesus were coming today and to speak on fasting, he, would, he probably wouldn't emphasize staying away from a meal time because that's sometimes the quietest time we have all day long. Sometimes it's the most relational time we'll have uh, for a week. I think he would say, you need to abstain or or stay away from noise, from busyness. Our era is the most congested, loudest human experience in the history of mankind. There has been nothing like uh, the, the busyness that we experience and the volume that we live with. And, and I think that's what keeps us away from God so many times. And, and he would, I think he would say, well, you need to abstain from that. We're not victims of this busyness. We are not victims of all these distractions. We are addicted to those things. We, we're past being victims. We are now addicted to them. And so now, you know, it's not uncommon for people when they come home and they're alone at night or alone during the daytime, they'll just turn on a TV somewhere or maybe even radio, maybe talk radio. They won't listen. They have no intention of watching these shows they just fear the silence. Because silence is so strange to us. It's new to human experience. So the idea here is, instead of, of wallowing in, in chronic dis- discontent or, or running uh, frantically from activity to activity, to, to living for noise, I think Jesus would say, abstain from those things. You know, If your relationship with God is... is um, not feeling his intimacy, his nearness to you, maybe you should stop these internet, television, all these things and draw near to God during that time. Maybe the pangs, uh, right, of your attention for something would be a pang for your soul towards him. When you... um, when you fast, and Jesus is talking about now fasting from food, so he's, te- he's giving us kind of the principles of fasting. He's going to say, look, don't make a big show of it. So again, if you're going to turn off the Internet or turn off your television for a week or two, don't advertise this. Look what he says. This is when you fast, uh, don't look all somber as the hypocrites do. They disfigure their faces and show men that they're fasting. I tell you the truth, they receive their full reward now. So, you're going to advertise all this that you're doing, then good for you. All the pats in the back, that's all you get. You want rewards for that? You got it. But he says, do it this way. Verse 17, but when you do fast, put oil in your head, on your head. That's like a hair product. Look good. Shave. Wash your face, right? So uh, that it will not be obvious to men that you're fasting, but only to your father who is unseen, and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you so, we, again, we don't know necessarily how fasting works, but we know, according to this passage, if we're doing it for the right reason, that we're rewarded for that. It's a, it's a step up, right? So if we're stuck in the mud in our relationship with God and the, and the prayer is not enough and the Bible reading and the Bible meditation is not enough, let's try fasting. Let's fasting from the noise around us, the grief maybe that's within us. It, it can overpower the grief that's within us or the worry that pervades our existence. Fasting. Try that. Another one that the Bible uses is just hanging around the right people. It's called fellowship in the Bible. Fellowship. Now here's what's interesting. It seems a little surprising that we could bring this up because these other things that we've talked about are spiritual things. They're church things, right? Pray, Bible study, fasting, and now it's talking about friendships. And the point is that you can't improve your vertical relationship with God unless you improve your horizontal relationship with your fellow man. And just like these other things, it has to be a habit. It has to be something that you pursue. It has to be desire and saying, and some, you know, with people uh, that are, have more difficult time, relationally speaking, you're going to have to work a little harder than some people c- because it's so important. It's, it's absolutely necessary in your life with Christ to have great friends fellowship. Now, I, we don't have time to go into the details, but if you remember our first week together when we were looking at intimacy with God and what it looks like and we are trying to see the cause-effect relationship there, we looked at a, a, a passage in Exodus chapter 17 where uh, Moses um, is, is teaching the people how we go to war and how God will win the war. And they're up, up against the Amalekites, these killing machine uh, culture. And, they're, and he says, look, uh, Joshua, you go down with the troops I'll go up on the hill with Aaron and her, and you'll see how the Lord works, even in everyday living, like war. And I will keep my hands up, and as my hands are raised, you will win the war. And that's what happens, except when Moses' hands get tired. He can't hold them up anymore, and he drops them down. And when he, when he drops his hand, the Amalekites start winning. Now, while that's an important message, there's another message to it. Look at verse 12 and 13. They're up on the screen. He says, Moses' hands grew tired and they took a stone and they put it underneath him for him to sit on. And Aaron on one side and Hur held his hands up, one on one side and one on the other side, so that his hands remained steady until sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with a sword. They won with a sword because his hands were held high. So while obviously the first lesson in this is that God was causing this war to be won, and he wanted everyone to see that vividly, right, with his hands being held up. The second lesson is is that this war was too hard for Moses. Life is too hard for even a man like Moses. And they won, not because Moses held his hands up, because he had two friends. He had Aaron and her hold his hands up. We are meant to be interdependent. We are designed to need other people. And fellowship, that's why fellowship is so important to our, in our relationship with God. I don't know how many times I've been knocked down, but I know three times, three seasons in my life where I could not get up. And, and, and what, what's interesting, in all three of those seasons, it was this fellowship that made all the difference in the, in the world. Because at those times, I could not pray. I mean, it sounds, um, well, it sounds dumb, but it, it, I could not pray. I couldn't think spiritual thoughts. They just, they weren't coming to me. Uh, I couldn't think in some of the circumstances. And then all three times, okay, lightning strikes out of the clear blue sky. I have a friend call me, or one time a person came over to my house, feeling like the Lord just led them to my house, and, and they just spoke to me. And they said, you know what? The sun's going to come up, okay? This is, this is just a time. God is near, right? They said God was near. And while I couldn't trust myself, and I couldn't trust God, I could trust my friends and their walk with God. See, they, they lifted my hands up. They were the ones, they were lifting my hands up. And, you know, in those times you're thinking, you know, God, are you, trying, are you trying to hug me right through someone else's arms? Yes, that's how He hugs us through, a per, through another person's arms. So, so here's the thing you need to make this a goal, like you would like a goal for praying and a goal for prayer life, right? You need to make a goal, a habit of finding out and keeping great friendships. The first thing you need to do is get rid of bad friends. Honest to goodness. Get rid of toxic friends that just kind of wear you down with their perfectionism or whatever their stuff is. Get rid of toxic friendships. And then go and pursue friendships that can, that can tell you and hold, about the presence of God and lift your arms up when you can. People that will hear God's voice and respond to it. When, if you're in these relationships and you feel God speaking to you about someone, call them. <laughs> Write them a note. Go by their house. At our church, we, you know, most of our church is structured around this value that we are born and built and designed to be interdependent, that we need other people. Would you pursue maybe the next step at this church? You know, Go to a Sunday school class or join a midweek study or go to a, a, an extra uh, event? Pray out to God for this. Pray out to God for this. He will answer this prayer because, because he wants you to be near to him and he knows a friendship, right? These, these pats on the back, these yelling across the lobby, those sorts of things, those are, those are relationships that will bring you closer to God. So he'll answer this prayer. Be patient, but pray for a great fellowship, great friends. Fasting, fellowship, and the last one is worship. worship. Let me just tell you about the power of music. Before we get into any kind of worship itself, let me just tell you about the power of worship. One of my favorite authors is uh, Peter Kraft. He's a philosophy professor at Boston College. He writes this about music. He says, today, very few people realize the power of music over the human souls. The ancients understood it. The Greeks, who had only um, primitive music, were so moved by the universality and and unquestionably uh, ascribed it to gods because it had so much power to the muses. That's where we get the word music. They knew there was so much power universally, there's so much power in music that, they, that it must be from the gods. When, when Plato wrote um, The Republic, right, um, it's about the ultimate society, the perfect society. He writes two pages on economics. He writes 40 pages on music. Certain types of people are supposed to learn, listen to certain types of music, right? Warriors listen to rock, heavy metal rock and roll, right? Poets listen to symphony. Uh, in in um, the ancient East, right, these, um, these emperors would rule China. They would rule China by sending spies into villages just to listen to the radio stations, right, just to listen to what people were singing in the streets, the lyrics themselves, right, and, and the music, the melody, the power of the melodies. And he could tell the, the, the health of a soul, by the types of music they would listen to, and if they were listening to bad music and they were listening to harsh lyrics, then they would send people in to help strengthen that that, that village. What kind of music you think they're listening to, right, in Baltimore? Healthy for their souls. My my point is, there's the power. There's power in music. Okay, it's it's nuclear, right? It can ex- it can blow things up and it can power things. Almost limitless power. It is stealth. The power of music is in its stealth capability. It goes past our brains, right? The filter, our brain. And it goes right directly to our soul. And that's why it has so much influence on our life, because we don't filter it. So here's the point. You use this. You use this to enhance your relationship with God. You, You use the power of music to center your life towards your relationship with Jesus Christ. You use this Amazing asset that we have from God, right? And we and we use it to bring us back with joy and thanksgiving towards God, right? The man after God's own heart, David, the man after God's own heart, songwriter and composer. That's the that's the power. That's the power of music, and we need to seize that power, right? And one of the ways we can do that, right? We use the, its power in individual worship. We can use that in individual worship. In our everyday life, here's what it looks like in everyday life. You wake up in the morning, one of the, one of the first things you listen to, you premeditate it. You go in front and make it part of your plan. And when I was younger, you know, the heavy, fast, you know, it was like a caffeine to me. We put on some worship music before we started our day. When we dro- drove to class, we were listening to some fun stuff. Now I'm a little, you know, <laughs> I like the softer stuff for the most part. But you pick what you listen to because you'll be probably humming that for the rest of the day. And let me say, again, the power, the stealth, and the nuclear power of, of worship, that's how you end your day. The last things you listen to. You choose the last things you listen to. When our children were young, up until they wouldn't take it anymore, probably until early years in high school, every night, every night, we put our children down, we climbed up in bed, we prayed with them, and we played this really mellow uh, Christian album, uh, I think it was called uh, Sweet-Sounding Jesus. Beautiful words, wonderful melodies, right? Just, 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 stirring to the soul every night until I think through eighth grade, they heard this. I think today, if you played that song, they'd be asleep in four, you know, stanzas. Just if Pavlov's has anything to do with it, out cold, me too. But we wanted to set the tempo and the mood and everything else. How they're going to end their day? They want We wanted them hear Bible verses committed to music. That could soothe their soul. That's what it looks like. That's what it looks like when you understand the power of music and you put it into worship. In your individual life, it can transform it. It can get you over, you know, the difficulties of life. Another way to do that is corporate worship. That means us, oh, what we do here on Sunday. Because li- li- I mean, just do this, quite literally the math on this, right? The power of fellowship plus the power of worship. We have this corporate worship. You combine these two things, and it's it's monumental, and I think especially the philosophy that we have here with the band. You know, Mike, Mike when he works with the band, he tells them, "No, no, we're the band is just background singers, background music for this choir called the congregation." And so there are times where you'll find yourself not wondering about your nearness to God, and you come in here, and the power of fellowship, and the power of corporate worship has amazing influence in the condition of your soul. Here's how to, let me, again, fundamentals, this whole series is on application. Can I tell you four ways to make sure corporate worship goes the best possible way it can? The first way is just attitude. Is your attitude, and, and, and maybe a better word would be priorities. Don't pencil in church, okay? Something will always happen. Pen it in. It's go, we are going to church. If you have young children or as Actually, it gets kind of weird around the teenage times. You know, are we going to go to church tomorrow? That's not a question children should ask after a certain ripe age because they know that's a ridiculous question. It's like saying, I know it's a hard weekend. Are we going to go to school tomorrow? Of course you're going to go to school on Monday. It doesn't matter, you know, for the most part, right, with a few exceptions. But you are going to go to school on Monday. Is Monday always a hard day to go to school? Always. Always. So if it's penciled in, you're going to be the, you're going to be the family that misses Mondays. That's how it works with church. You don't pencil this in, you make it a priority. Attitude is everything. This is something that you live your, the rest of your week around. And so that brings me to the second kind of way to make corporate worship work. The second one is you start on Saturday night. You know, historically, culturally, right? You look at all kinds of religions, but especially Judaism, the Sabbath starts at sunset. You wanna make the most of Sunday morning? At sunset on Saturday night, teach your children, if you have young children, teach them, it's Saturday night, we get to come in early. We get to take baths early. We get to have a great family time that's kind of mellow early. It's a wonderful way to train your children to think, you know, cyclically and living their lives around, you know, six days of work and one day of rest, and that, and that day of rest is this, is worship together. We used to always bring our kids in early on Saturday nights, even in the summertime when the sun was still out. Attitude starts on Saturday night. Don't spend too much time out late at night. And then on Sunday morning, wake up extra early, whatever that means. You know, it could be 10 minutes or 15 or 30. There will be chaos. I mean, I think there's something, well, I know, there's something spiritually happening here, and and there are forces that don't want you here. And, and so something's going to happen, and you can count on it. And if you get up early enough, you can counter those things, and maybe sometimes you have the spiritual insight to recognize those things. So you get up early, and then you show up, and, and then you come expectantly. You expect great things, and here's what, I, here's what I mean by that. You expect great things from God, and you expect great things to encourage someone else. If you come to give at church, it's an amazing perspective that will change your intimacy with God. Here's how you make the most of corporate worship. Again, you have, you have the right attitude. You start early, right? You start on Saturday. You get up early. You expect great things here. And that's, that can change everything. Friends, again, I've been down three times where I couldn't get up. It was fellowship and corporate worship. It was the power of music in my life that did this. This Sunday morning worship service is what revived my soul on one of these Seasons where I was stuck. Okay, I, I just went through about 15 months of, of the hardest 15 months and 25 years ministry experience. There, something happened to my body where I had a thyroid thing that went out of whack and my chemistry was changing. And then um, a series of betrayals. And I was, I was just getting up. I mean, I was just getting back to my feet. And then we had a family tragedy. And then I knew, I, I know enough about... Um, I guess uh, psychology. I guess I knew that I was th- the pitch of the slide into darkness was picking up. Right? Do you understand? I mean, I, I was barely, I was just h- hanging over the edge, and then, and then, while I was just getting up on a, in my standing eight count, something else happened to me, and I was slipping. And, and And we were playing some music that was, you know, that was too melancholy for me, and I, it was calling my name like a siren, you know wreck your, you know, follow this, follow this sound, you know, wreck, wreck your life here on depression, and I was so afraid, and I just, what do I have to do, and guess what, God brought people into my life, and they drugged me here, and there's a saying, there's, it's a funny saying, but you know, when you're happy, you listen to the music, and when you're sad, you listen to the lyrics, and I, and I started showing up at church, and I started, I was, started reading the lyrics, and I was overwhelmed by the truths that we sing about, and finally those things were able to wash over my soul and cleanse me from the grief. The intoxication of grief was more powerful than just Bible study and prayer. But it was not more powerful, right, than Bible study and prayer and fasting and friendships and worship. I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm begging you guys. You want to feel the nearness of God. This is what it looks like. You have, to, you have to do something about it. You have to live expectantly. Okay? You have to live expectantly that God is, that is near. All earth is crammed with heaven. All of earth is crammed with heaven. Shakespeare put it this way Our life finds tongues in trees, and books in running brooks, sermons in stones, and good in everything. It is brimming. Life is brimming with possibilities of having encounters with God. But you have to have ears to hear. You have to have the eyes to see. You have to do something. So just let me summarize, and then I'm going to ask us to make, you know, I'm going to challenge you, okay? But here's what we've talked about. We've talked about conversational prayer together in our five weeks. We talked about purposeful prayer. We talked about reading, you know, the Bible relationally, have, trying to develop a relationship with God, and then memorizing and meditating on it. But now today we've talked about, like, supercharging it in times of difficulty with Fasting and with great friendships, right? And with with worship. Now, here's what I want to know. What are you going to do about this? With this information, I mean. Right? You know, you got your outline filled out. You have to choose. You can't just be somebody that hears the word, right? You have to do. You have to do those things. So I want to just kind of close our whole series and our time together with. That's just bowing our heads, if you don't mind, and asking you pointedly, what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about this? You want to improve your relationship with God? You want to keep your focus on Christ? That's where the power of the gospel is, remember? The power of the gospel is keeping our our souls focused on the love of God and what He has done for us in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So now, you know, what do we do? It's just like any other relationship. Our prayer time. Have you, have, you know, we made a commitment to 15 minutes of prayer. Do you want to continue to do that? You have to make a commitment to that. Would you like to, why don't you make a commitment to do that some more, right? Maybe through the whole summer. See what happens. A focused prayer time, not just conversational prayer, all the time, be thinking of Him, but also focused. In your Bible reading, will you make a commitment again to maybe memorizing? 52 verses one a week for this year. Would you consider maybe fasting from something? Something that's distracting you? Or maybe maybe it's because you just need something else to get you unstuck out of the mud. Would you pursue again friendships? Would you pursue purposeful great friendships? Maybe you might need to end a toxic friendship before you start any good ones. You might have to do some time out before you can find new friends because you need to get right untoxic yourself. Would you have a renewed commitment to worship? Or you or you pen this moment in. You pen it in and you say, "Oh yeah, yeah. We're absolutely going to be going to church." Other things are variables. Make choices, make choices. Choose to live a life that draws you near to God. The earth is crammed with heaven and every common bush, a fire with God. But only he who sees it, only those who see it, they take off their shoes. They know that God is near. The rest sit around and pluck blackberries. Lord Jesus, I'd ask that you would help us make this kind of commitment that that your spirit would overwhelm us with the vision of what our life could become if we were fully surrendered to you, that you've taken our lives as sinful as they are and that you've transformed them into the righteousness of Jesus Christ. By the power of grace, you transformed us. Now, Lord, let us pursue you. Help us play our part. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. For more information about grace, visit our website at grace360.org.